0: Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg.
1: Good morning to Robert Kaplan. He is the president of the Dallas Federal Reserve Bank, and he joins us on Bloomberg Radio and Television from there. Good morning to
2: you, sir. Hi, Mike. Good to see you.
1: We'd like to start by asking about what you're seeing in your district. You've been at the epicenter of the latest COVID surge in cases. Uh, What's happening to the economy there now?
2: Uh, Probably around uh, mid-June, the sharp rebound we were seeing started to moderate and started to stall. That was coincident. It came at the same time and along with the resurgence of the virus. And so we saw cases increase. We saw hospitalizations uh, uh, steadily increase. That has started to moderate, based on the numbers I see, the daily numbers I get. It's started to moderate over the last number of days. Uh, but what you saw the state do is put in, uh, and cities put in, uh, in uh, a, a, a backup or a, a, uh, unwinding of some of the reopening steps re-emphasize how important it is to wear a mask. and we saw we saw some effect of that. but you you're seeing a rebound that's stalling to some extent. That's what we're seeing in in Texas.
1: Well, that caused you to do a rethink of your economic forecast. What do you see ahead for growth and inflation and unemployment?
2: Well, I, and we're because we were seeing it here and in, and in a number of other states, uh, it's still our view. THAT WILL CONTRACT FOR THE YEAR AT ABOUT 45 TO 5%. IT HAS BEEN OUR VIEW AFTER A VERY SHARP DECLINE IN THE SECOND QUARTER. WE'D HAVE VERY HEALTHY REBOUND IN THE THIRD AND THE FOURTH QUARTER. I THINK, I think uh, THAT REBOUND IS MORE MUTED IN THE UNITED STATES NOW. Uh, and uh, it's caused me to think that the unemployment rate, if we don't do a better job managing the virus, the unemployment rate is is likely to be above nine percent between nine and ten percent. So we've we've moved up our unemployment forecast. Uh, and, and so um, I think we've got a rebound, uh, but it's it's much more muted than it was. And if we if we don't do a better job managing the virus, We're going to have lower growth, and we're going to have a higher unemployment rate. And so I've been spending a lot of my time talking more about the virus than anything else because it's so critical to the recovery.
1: Well, the $600 extra unemployment bonus and eviction moratorium, they're gone now. First, has the Fed, has your staff modeled the impact of that on the economy? And second, should we expect a wave of defaults that might affect credit markets?
2: We we have looked at it. And one of the things that's unusual about this downturn that we've just had is incomes have stayed relatively solid. And a big part of the reason is these uh, unemployment benefits. And so we're normally in a downturn, you see a drop in incomes. We haven't seen that here. Uh, It's still my view that in some form, we'll get an extension of unemployment benefits. So uh, I'm quite hopeful that that will continue. But if it didn't, Uh, Yeah, you would see a further weakening in the economy and uh, in particular because consumers wouldn't have as much money in their pocket to spend.
1: Any business people telling you that six hundred dollar bonus was keeping people from coming back to the labor force?
2: Uh, A lot of business people were telling me that, honestly, they were they were telling me that uh, it was challenging to hire people. Uh, We've looked at a number of studies, we've done our own work. We don't see it as much in the data, but I can tell you I'm hearing it uh, from business people. Uh, And so, however, uh, whatever the right answer is, uh, I, I think you still are going to need to see extension of unemployment. It may be restructured to some extent from the $600, but but I think it's important that we see an extension of it. And I think the increased incomes, while it may have, while it may have made it hard for certain individual businesses to hire, it's helped create jobs because it's helped bolster consumer spending. So the net effect still has probably been positive for the economy and for employment.
1: A number of your uh, uh, colleagues, uh, well, at least a number of epidemiologists, joined by your colleague, Neil Kashkari of Minneapolis, uh, say that we need another nationwide lockdown for about four weeks to defeat the virus and that that should be job one over reopening the economy. What do you think of that?
2: Uh, I probably have a somewhat different uh, view based on my conversations, again, with epidemiologists locally and through the country, in that uh, the epidemiologists I've spoken with, which has been been widespread conversations, believe we could manage uh, this economy and the virus and have the economy open if all of us wore masks. That's first and foremost, and then we need a good testing and contact tracing regime. But in particular, uh, if we all wore masks, they believe it would substantially mute the transmission of the virus, and you would not need to do a widespread lockdown. And in fact, many of them fear, if you did did more lockdowns, if you still don't have good following of the healthcare protocols, the lockdown to some extent would be wasted. And so uh, I think their advice is, uh, be very careful about the reopening. Uh, enforce a widespread uh, practice of wearing masks, social distancing. Now there might be isolated or uh, localized areas in the United States where the virus is is uh, become unmanageable, and they're going to have to take far more extreme steps like lockdowns. But I think we're going to have to learn to live with this virus. Um, we're going to have to learn to re-engage in our daily activities, but still control the virus, but widespread mask wearing is essential to that, and I think it's probably the most important practice that maybe has been done unevenly, and we've, we've lost an opportunity to, to, to recover and control the virus and grow faster.
1: We're speaking with Dallas Fed President Robert Kaplan on Bloomberg Television and Radio. Uh, Do you anticipate, uh, President Kaplan, that the Fed will change its forward guidance perhaps as early as September and tie it to inflation running a little bit above 2% for a while?
2: Um, I'll just speak for myself. I I would not do that. Um, We've already given... uh, Fairly specific forward guidance in the form of our st- summary of economic projections, the SCP, where we've made clear that rates are going to stay around the current levels for the next couple of years. I would, I would far prefer when we do give forward guidance in the future that we tie it to our dual mandate, uh, and and particularly tie it to the to unemployment, uh, along with making progress on inflation. But I. I myself would not be in favor of tying uh, forward guidance specifically to inflation. I, I I would not want to see us do that.
1: Uh, old guys like you and me remember the uh, last time the Fed traded a little bit of inflation for lower unemployment, uh, the Arthur Burns era. Are you worried at all that that might be a mistake?
2: Uh, the, the inflation dynamic is different now, uh, m- meaning used to be is in the in the old days as you say uh when you had a very tight labor market and you were at or past full employment you would see inflation but the world has changed the structure environment of the of the economy has changed with technology technology enabled disruption which is limited pricing power businesses that along with globalization has meant that the fed has been able to run the economy hotter with more muted inflation And so, we've had to change the way we think about uh, inflation unemployment. And we've also, and I've also been much more cognizant of underrepresented groups, uh, lower educated, uh, blacks, Hispanics, women with a high school education or less. By running hotter, we've been able to get these underrepresented groups back into the economy, back into the workforce. And I think that's been very valuable.
1: The primary and secondary credit market facilities have up to 750 billion dollars available yet you've bought only 12.3 billion in bonds. The Main Street program, you can buy up to 600 billion but you've bought only 82 million so far. Why doesn't anybody want your money?
2: Yeah, so uh, I've spent a good amount of time. For example, I've got a, a, a key role in the municipal finance program, where we we have a fi- it's a 500 billion dollar program, and we've put out, as you noted, a very small fraction of that. I think one of the features of of the municipal program, uh, the corporate bond program, is usage is not an indicator of the power of the program. Just by announcing these programs and making clear that we would help. Uh, provide a backstop to these markets, you've seen a substantial rally and flow of funds into these markets to where uh, the Fed pricing is less attractive to market than market pricing, and the Fed hasn't had to actually purchase securities the way we might have thought. I think that's a good outcome, uh, and I, I think the programs have served their purpose. Uh, on programs, on the other hand, like PPP, uh, I think it's very critical that those programs got used. And, and on the Main Street program, I think uh, over time, I think we'll, we'll want to keep getting feedback and looking at ways that that program could get more fully used. Because I do worry, as, as healthy as the financial markets are, and as loose as financial conditions are right now, one place they're not loose is for small and mid-sized companies, particularly if they're in person-to-person contact industries. And the Main Street program, and if there's another round of the PPP, those programs are critical to helping those small, mid-sized companies get credit. Uh, And so I, I, I do think usage is important to look at there
1: one visible aspect of uh, what the fed has done at least according to investors is the stock market Uh, do you worry that you're creating a bubble however necessary your actions may be but that it might pop and take the economy down with it
2: Uh, i i do think it's wise for us whenever we're doing uh, uh asset purchases and we've done something i think even more uh, extraordinary in in this downturn in that we've done these 13-3 programs, which have helped backstop these financial markets, Yeah, I, I think we'd be wise to be cognizant and concerned about the impact we have on risk assets. I, I think it's necessary, but I think it's very important that these programs have a sunset date that the markets understand they're not going to go on indefinitely. I know we, we've just extended our thirteen three programs to December 31st, but but I do think it's important that we emphasize these programs will sunset, they will lapse, lapse because I think it's very important that these markets uh, are able to function without Fed support. And, and I think the Fed support creates its own uh, fragilities in the markets, and I think we should be very cognizant of that.
1: Uh, can't let you go without asking about oil. Bankruptcies are uh, spreading throughout the industry. Prices started to recover, but now seem to be rolling over a bit. Gasoline demand is falling. What is the outlook?
2: Well, so uh, actually, gasoline demand in the United States has has recovered now to again in the neighborhood of high 80s, 90 percent of a year ago. I, I've actually been surprised how strong demand has been, even with the resurgence of the virus. People are driving. They're not taking mass transit and they're not flying, but they are driving their cars. Uh, I think to your point, though, with the resurgence of the virus, the recovery in, in demand has stalled a little bit and is hovering around 90 percent. And at the same time, we've got all this excess inventory. You know, We had all this oversupply that had been built up because of the drop in demand earlier this year. And I think it's going to take till middle of 2021 for that excess inventory to be worked off. So you're going to have a very challenging energy industry and oil market uh, probably for the next six, 12 months, depending on how the virus proceeds and how demand recovers, because we've got a lot of excess inventory and oversupply. Uh, I think it will begin to firm later next year, but in the meantime, you're seeing shut-ins, I mean, people who are producing, who shut in their wells. You're seeing rig count drop precipitously. And I think you'll see U.S. production fall from about 12.8 million barrels a day uh, at the end of 2019 to will end this year around 10.8 million barrels a day, a big drop. And, and that's even with reversal of most of the shut-ins. Uh, we're just seeing less drilling activity, and you're going to see, and you are seeing lots of bankruptcies, restructurings, and stress uh, in the energy sector. Uh,
1: you're the markets guy at the fed you worked at goldman sachs for a long time uh, the enormous volatility in the treasury market we saw back in march did that have to happen uh, reports are it was caused in part by huge levered bets by uh, hedge funds do we need significant changes do we need uh, supervision of the shadow banking system
2: yeah so i do think part of what's what happened in march which maybe hasn't been talked about enough is is you had in March and in part of April a a forced selling wave through many financial markets. There was a substantial amount of embedded leverage, whether people were leveraging treasuries as part of uh, risk parity trades or other strategies. And part of what the Fed did is facilitate that deleveraging. But, But I think now that we've been through it, I do think it would be worth doing more study uh, as, as to what, what, what was the role of embedded leverage in these markets um, and, and what are the implications. And I think, again, it means the Fed just needs to be cognizant that financial stability considerations are sometimes hard to see and they can build up. Uh, and then when you have a stress event like we had this year, you see it manifest itself. Uh, I'm also very aware when you mention the Treasury market, Treasury is not the natural uh, component of a, of a portfolio that maybe it was, because rates are so low, uh, you, you might find that, that many people who used to buy Treasuries naturally as part of a portfolio will be buying other assets, uh, gold, maybe other assets. So that'll have also have an effect on the Treasury market that I think we're going to have to spend more time trying to understand.
1: Well, we'll check back with you and see what you've learned in a couple of months. Robert Kaplan, president of the Dallas Fed, thank you very much for joining us today on Bloomberg Radio and television worldwide.
0: Right now to begin our week of economic coverage here on this simulcast on radio and TV worldwide is Ethan Harris. He's a Bank of America with authority on the transfer from Greenspan to Bernanke with this wonderful uh, book. And also on absolutely nailing the non-V-shaped recovery of (laughs) 2007-2008. No major house did better than Bank of America on that call. Ethan, once
3: again, we don't have a V-shaped recovery. What kind is it? <laughs> well, we have a two-month V followed probably by three months of L. That's what it looks like. And then hopefully from there we start picking up again. But, I mean, if you look broadly at the data, uh, clearly the resurgence in the virus caused the, uh, a little bit of pulling back in the economy in uh, July. And we expect things to be kind of flattish for the next few months.
0: What is your unemployment statistic for Friday? I mean, people are verbaling a 10ish percent. How much yeah. of a mystery is that statistic?
3: Well, I mean, the employment report is going to be uh, could be anything as we know economists have done a terrible job of forecasting it in the last couple months and that's because there's so much cross-currents in terms of firing and hiring in the labour market. I mean, our guess at this point is the unemployment rate dips below 11%, so it comes down to 107 But to put that in perspective, that would be worse than any month during the Great Recession of 2008-2009. So it's great that it's coming down, uh, but there's still a long way to go.
4: Ethan, did you ever think that you'd have a payrolls guess of positive 1 million, but then also right in the line afterwards there's a risk of a negative print. I mean, just how unprecedented is this moment for this payrolls report this Friday?
3: Yeah, I mean, it's a product of the unprecedented nature of the crisis. You have, uh, you know, companies that laid off, you know, 20 million people and now they're hiring some of them back Uh, and the data we look at, the economists look at that's supposed to tell us what these numbers are going to be just doesn't really tell the whole story and so we you know we try hard. I mean every economist is looking at these numbers over time and we're still getting big forecast errors so it's it's just an unprecedented time and so unprecedented volatility.
4: Ethan, any seasonal quirks that we should be going into this print? Well, you do have a little bit of that.
3: You've got, um, you know, you don't have the usual shutdown of the auto sector. In the summer, uh, so that, that could help a little bit. We've, we've got payrolls coming in at a million. I, I think the consensus is a little higher than that. Uh, but, it, but those kind of smaller seasonal stories are overshadowed by, you know, like I said, all the volatility of the number. I would view a million as OK. I mean, this is, remember, payroll survey is taken fairly early in the month. So it's reflecting how the economy was doing in late June and early July. Uh, Things have weakened since then. So it's, believe it or not, it's slightly old news. Uh, THIS this, uh, JULY PAYROLL NUMBER.
5: IT'S QUITE CLEAR THAT THE LABOR MARKET IS WEAKENING AND THERE'S FAITH THAT WASHINGTON WILL COME TO SOME SORT OF DEAL TO EXTEND THE ENHANCED UNEMPLOYMENT BENEFITS. LET'S JUST ASSUME THAT THEY WILL COME TO A DEAL. DOES IT MATTER IF THEY DON'T COME TO A DEAL IN THE NEXT TWO WEEKS OR THREE WEEKS, IF IT TAKES THEM A MONTH? HOW BIG WILL the, THE IMPACT BE ON THE ECONOMY?
3: Yeah. I mean, every week of delay, it gets a lot worse. I mean, these are not, you know, the people getting unemployment benefits are on life support here. Uh, Their benefits don't expire entirely. It's just the uh, $600 bonus. But that's been a lifeline for the unemployed and for the retail sector, which has done pretty well. Um, Every week that passes that there's no extension is another week where they're cutting back on spending and getting a little more desperate. So uh, The timing is very important. Uh, And um, I would hope that they don't cut them uh, too much, that they cut them moderately. And I hope that there's more in the package than just that. The the economy needs a lot of support right now. We're only halfway back to normal. We need a package that's about half as big as what we got in the spring. So it's got to be like $1.5 not. $1 $1 trillion, and, and it needs to be targeted well to the people who are most distressed. They're the ones who are going to spend money. Uh, so the size, the speed, uh, the, the, the targeted nature of the package, they're all important. And right now, I'm, I'm quite worried.
5: Well, so you have fiscal hawks kind of coming back among some of the Republicans. And I have to wonder, not all deficits are the same. We're going to get a sense of how deep the deficit is going to be getting today when the Treasury Department releases their financing needs over the next three months. Can you give us a sense of how much lower the deficit will be, how much shallower it will be, if there is a successful stimulus versus, say, not having a stimulus now and a slower growth uh, trajectory going forward?
3: Yeah. Well, I mean, you, you have to pick your poison here. We're not going to we're not going to solve the budget deficit by cutting spending now. I mean, that's just risking driving the economy back into collapse. So there's a balancing act here. There's no choice. We either going to have a big Bigger deficit because the economy is terrible. Or we're going to have a bigger deficit because we're spending more money to support uh, vulnerable parts of the economy. Um, you know, you can on the margin maybe reduce the deficit a little bit by, by uh, cutting the corners. You certainly can can reduce the impact on the deficit if you're smart about the way you distribute money. So, for example, these checks that they're being sent to households, these stimulus checks. Most people who get those checks, unless they're unemployed, they're putting them in the bank. That's just a handoff from the government to the private sector. Um, If you really want to stimulate activity and get a good bang for the buck, send it to the parts of the economy that need it. Send it to the unemployed, state and local governments, uh, you know, um, small businesses that are in distress. Uh, But these broader stimulus programs just don't work very well. We know from history that most of that money Doesn't make it into the economy. It just goes into people's uh, savings accounts.
4: Ethan, we're sitting here talking about policy risk. Arguably, we've already seen a policy mistake. These enhanced unemployment benefits have expired. What's the damage they will do to the early August data that we're going to see in the next couple of weeks?
3: Yeah, I mean, it's going to take a while to see it in the numbers. Um, And each week that passes, it's going to get a lot more noticeable. Uh, Presumably, people have been getting this money. Uh, because a, a lot of them are getting more in unemployment than they would have had they been working. Hopefully, they've saved a small amount of it so they can kind of survive a week or two. Uh, so, I don't think things are, I don't think you fall off a cliff in terms of spending. I think you just kind of gradually uh, weaken. And by the end of August, if they still haven't passed it, you're seeing a substantially slower consumer. We're talking about um, a weekly benefit of about. billion. That's even for a big economy like the U.S. That's a big number. Uh, So it's going to be a kind of a sliding down in terms of activity. And those retail sales numbers that look so fantastic and really weathered the crisis well because the stimulus has been so strong for households, those numbers will start to fade as as the month goes on.
0: And Ethan, if as the month goes on, is frankly unimaginable, whatever anybody's politics is uh, as well. How do you adjust Q3 and particularly how will you adjust Q4 GDP if we go along?
3: Yeah, well, um, well, first of all we don't think there's going to be any real growth in the third quarter. Now, everyone's got a high GDP growth number for the third quarter, but that's because we ended the second quarter so strong. We had huge growth in May and June. And so the launching off point for the quarter looks high relative to the prior quarter, but we don't have any growth in our forecast during the quarter. We've just got basically flat activity with, as we see, a small pickup in jobs. So what you're going to do then is you're going to cut into that even more. Um, you, it's almost impossible to get a, 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 a to get a negative GDP number for the third quarter, given that we start off at a higher level. But um, but yeah, I mean, as you get into the fourth quarter, you know, you're hoping that you know you get a. a Third quarter, maybe 20% pickup because of that that effect of June on the data. You're hoping in the fourth quarter you get like a five or 10% growth rate, but you know you, you could in the fourth quarter get a zero if you, uh, or even a negative number if you don't deliver at all in fiscal policy. Now I think they'll deliver. I've, we've seen this we've seen this uh, this uh, soap opera before, and you know uh, once people start crying and really hurting, then they come to a decision, and uh, you know uh, maybe it requires that the markets get a little bit upset because they, it takes too long, uh, but eventually I think they'll come to a deal. I just worry that they'll wait too long and it won't be well targeted.
4: Ethan, great to catch you with you, sir. Big week ahead, Ethan Harris <laughs> there of Bank of America Securities.
0: turn now, after uh, Mr. Kaplan, to Catherine Mann. Catherine Mann uh, is uh, at Citigroup. She is one of our most distinguished international economists. And what has been wonderful about her work from her days at MIT is she is someone with a sense of history. Dr. Mann, the simple reality for all of the Fed, all of the academics, and all of our viewers and listeners is we've never seen yields at this level. Do they damage the economy and do they damage confidence
6: at these low levels? Well, there are a number of different factors here. I think that, you know, the bifurcation between the asset side of the economy and the real side of the economy is accentuated at very low yields because you have the asset side uh, searching for any different, any strategy in order to to get the the return on the assets. That's where the leverage comes from. That's where the uh, reach for yield comes from. And yet that doesn't translate that financial market um, oomph that comes from the Fed is not translating into the real economy. And, and that bifurcation is even more apparent now than it's been uh, ever.
0: And what is so important about this, folks, if you look uh, you, within the theoretical model, Dr. Mann, the Hicksian and ISLM model, mm-hmm. the LM curve benefits the haves. Does all the fancy mumbo jumbo, does it benefit the have-nots
6: of American society? There's always, I'm bringing in the ISLM uh, model um, on Bloomberg. That's, you know, you're expecting your your viewers to be uh, pretty teched up. But um, so, you know, there are channels through which the, you know, low interest rates, et cetera, do uh, benefit the, quote, have-nots. I mean, anybody who owns a house is actually benefiting right now. And, you know, that still is a widespread uh, asset holding in the United States. It is not everybody. There's no doubt about that. Um, so, but but that is an important channel, and of course, to the extent that the Fed is supporting companies uh, that um, are still, you know, are still. Uh, wearing a life preserver, because we're, we're only in life preserver mode at this point. Uh, everybody's trading water, hoping that the, the virus is going to go away or, or there's a vaccine. Um, the Fed is uh, providing a backstop for those companies, and they they are still in the business of uh, um, of employing people. So that is also something that is, that is the role that the Federal Reserve plays. But there can be no doubt, there can be no doubt that the, the concentration of wealth uh, it, it, you know The Federal Reserve's policies does benefit those who hold wealth, and that is very concentrated in the United States. But it's not, it doesn't have no effect on the have-nots. I mean, I think we have to be fair about that.
5: Catherine, rates have remained incredibly low. Your record lows at the same time that you see inflation expectations ticking up. And Mike Wilson of Morgan Stanley over the weekend saying that that could actually continue to increase over time. Just a quote from him. He quoted Milton Friedman famously saying, nothing is so permanent as a temporary government program. This is potentially more inflationary than appreciated, which means that back end rates can rise. Portfolios are not positioned for this. Do you agree?
6: Well, I agree that um, that rates could rise, um, but I don't. I don't think that I don't agree with Milton Friedman. Um, the other quote that he's very well known for is, of course, that inflation is always and everywhere a monetary phenomenon. In other words, the size of the balance sheet, the credit growth uh, that we've been seeing around the world, uh, that 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 is assumed by the Friedmanites that that it, this is going to be uh, inflationary ultimately. However. Um, and the markets are not positioned for that, but the way the markets are not positioned, I think, is not so much that there's going to be inflation that's out of control, but there will be more inflation than the markets expect. There is a big gap between inflation expectations as measured by the market and inflation expectations that is measured by the way the market, uh, the um, labor market and the product market work. In other words, Milton Friedman's view of the world is very macro. The way we think inflation works these days is about, can workers get um, get wage increases in tight labor markets? The answer is pretty much no. Do firms feel like they can raise prices? The answer is pretty much no. So you don't have any inflationary uh, impetus coming through those kinds of micro foundations mm-hmm. of inflation. But the market pricing, the financial market pricing of inflation, is way right. below percent. Way below one
0: percent, really. Dr. Mann, I've got to get in a question here on international economics, and I note your wonderful map behind you with Latin America over your right shoulder. What is the fragility right now of EM and particularly commodity-based and virus-affected EM? Do you find it to be early 90s critical condition, or is it better than we perceive?
6: There are a couple of different cross currents on the commodity market, uh, the exposed uh, commodity market economies. One, of course, is the domestic uh, COVID crisis, which is uh, quite apparent in a number of countries in Latin America, and that's very negative for for their economies. And of course, uh, the, the death toll in the individuals. On the other hand, the dollar weakness is supportive of commodity pricing and we have seen some improvement in commodity pricing and that is at the margin beneficial for um, the Latin economies in particular. Now we have to overlay on top of that of course that Within these economies, even pre-COVID, there was quite a lot of differentiation in terms of the sort of the status and stability of both the pol- political systems as well as the as the quality of economic policy. So there are really three factors that you know have to weigh when we look at, at Latin American economies: the domestic policy environment, political env- political and policy environment. Number two, the COVID, and mm-hmm. and, and then dollar weakness and implications for commodity prices.
0: Dr. Mann, thank you so much. Very valuable after comments from Mr. Kaplan. Catherine Mann, of course, with Citigroup. Let's get back to the moment at hand for this nation, which is 30 million people, unemployment checks, aid, however you want to put it, income substitution, it's evaporated. Leslie Vinger-Murray joins us with Chatham House out of London with a huge focus on the United States and the rest of the Americas as well. Dr. Vinger-Murray, frame for us the urgency now for any and all. There just seems to be a we'll get through this in a week or two. Do they have a week or two?
7: No. I mean, I, you know, you think about a hot August summer in the United States, 30 million people uh, out of work, a lot of people still engaging in those protests um, and looking for that check and watching the numbers. Right. The big story is the virus watching over 1000 Americans dying every day and no sign of relief, no sign of schools reopening. Hard to imagine going back to work, even if there were jobs. There's going to be very little sympathy on the streets of America for a Congress that can't get its act together and agree a new fiscal stimulus plan. That includes very substantial commitment to sustaining those unemployment benefits. But partisanship is the name of the game. It's come back. That bipartisan consensus that we saw initially, it's gone. And so, you know, But but making it there's a lot of pressure on both sides right now to firm up some sort of package.
4: Leslie, history is just littered with this. Whenever the crisis fades, the collective will to do more fades with it. We're experiencing that at the moment, except the crisis hasn't really faded much at all, has it, Leslie? And this is the issue. What is plan B down in D.C.? And how close are we to them actually talking about it?
7: Well, I mean, I think you can't stress enough. There is no sign. And this is, you know, watching this from London, it is extraordinary to watch America really drive itself down this the, the, the rabbit hole of this crisis. Um, plan B is, you know, we're hearing some reports that maybe the White House has a plan to step in. Um, it's not clear what that would be. It clearly has to work with Congress. Uh, but the Democrats have a strong incentive to hold firm, to ask for more, to ask for a bigger package, um, especially as they can see. Right. Donald Trump's uh, polling, you know, not holding, holding up against his, his vice presidential contender. Um, and so I think it's difficult to see the end in sight, but there's tremendous pressure to um, to at least have a temporary measure. And that's what we are may well see soon.
5: Leslie, there's the potential policy failure on not passing necessarily an extension to the enhanced unemployment benefits. There's also policy failure that I think is incredibly important to focus on, one that you focused on. That is the lack of a virus policy, and you said that the bottom line is there still is no national plan for the virus, for fighting it, so we need the stimulus. How expensive is it that the United States does not have a cohesive policy on fighting the virus?
7: we're seeing the numbers, right? You've seen the number in fiscal stimulus. You see the debates going on in Congress. But the story of ongoing death, um, ongoing and rising infection in so many states um, and people just not being able to function, right, not being able to lead their daily lives. I think there was a period in which there was something novel about it. There was really a rally around the flag. And then we had a moment of, you know, the George Floyd moment, which really I think in some, in some senses, galvanized Americans brought them together, gave them a focus. And now it's getting long. It's getting expensive. And people are looking at September, right? They want right. things to begin in September.
0: Uh, John, this is so important. And to have Dr. Vinger Murray with us from London, it works. And, John, you're nodding acquaintance with uh, the city. And it's just real simple. Mr. Slack, representing the prime minister, begins to suggest a lockdown of London. John, that's a, that's. First of all, is it doable, John?
4: This is a worst-case option. It was reported by the Sunday Times newspaper, Tom, a plan to seal off London. And let's be clear, we're not there yet. I want to emphasize that. But there's a narrative doing the round that the United States has a higher tolerance for infections than, say, the continent. And I think that narrative is just too broad for what is actually happening in Europe at the moment. On the continent, you might be thinking about Europe, the mainland. In the UK, Leslie, there does seem to be just as high a tolerance for some of this and to reopen and push further. The prime minister's backed away from that in the last week or so. Can you speak to what is happening in the United Kingdom at the moment?
7: Uh, you know, there's a lot of pragmatism amongst the British population. You, you see some of the images of you know people flocking to the beaches, whether it's in Kent or whether it's in Cornwall. But the reality is that mo- pe- most people are quite cautious. They're seeing that there might be more pressure, more shuddering, that there might be reversals. That there, and I think the-, the one thing that's good is that there is now some confidence that there's actually careful planning A, B, and C. You know, if that infection rate rises above a certain level, that there will be shuddering. Uh, that there's still a lot of uncertainty, I think, around schools. They've said that schools are opening in September, that people are going back to work. A lot of uncertainty about how that actually works and what it will mean, especially in London, where you have so many people reliant on the underground and public transportation to make that happen. A lot of people planning to stay at home. Uh, But it really, I would say, is a very different context from what we're seeing in the United States. People largely feel that the virus is out of their daily life, obviously, with the exception of the most vulnerable populations or people in elderly care facilities. Um, but life is, you know, not normal, but it's, a, it's acclimatized to a new kind of normal.
4: Learning to live with it. Leslie, great to catch up with you. Stay safe, won't you? Liz- Leslie Vinjamari there of Chatham House. Thanks for
0: listening to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Subscribe and listen to interviews on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whichever podcast platform you prefer. I'm on Twitter at Tom Keen. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide I'm Bloomberg Radio.